In Michigan Conference, actually in our union, the Lake Union, we are about to kick off a union-wide evangelistic campaign in March, March 28, actually, called Unlock Revelation. And prior to doing that, now we're in Cedar Lake, Michigan. Anybody know where Cedar Lake is? It's not a big place. And the reality is this. Most of our churches, I'm a pastor. Most of our churches aren't in Los Angeles. They're not in Spokane. They're in little towns. And pastors, Adventist pastors, pastor three and four church districts of 20 people apiece. And so we're in Cedar Lake, but we have this series coming up. We heard about Path. In fact, one of our, one of our local pastors, a young man named Taylor Hinkle, some of you may know Taylor. He works with, he's uh, head of evangelism for GYC. Anyway, we decided we're going to do this thing in our little area. So we're doing a pathway to health. It's not going to be a three-day. It's going to be a one-day because we got excited about that. And, you know, I hear some of you guys are like, oh, Los Angeles, that's a long way away. Hey, here's an idea. Do one here. Now, I don't know. One of our challenges was finding the, the dentists and the doctors. You guys, I don't know where you'd find them here in Loma Linda, <laughs> right? But at any rate, look, the Lord Jesus is coming. And we want to let people know. We want, to, we want to minister to them just like Jesus did. And so pray for us with our pathway to health that we're doing in uh, Cedar Lake, Michigan. I'm glad to be with you here this morning. And before I get into the message itself, I'd like to have a word of prayer. So I'm going to kneel and ask God to bless our time together. If you bow your heads with me at this time, please. Father in heaven, I thank you for the Sabbath day. I thank you for your goodness toward us. Father, the Sabbath is a time where you've cleared your calendar for us. And we thank you. You invited us into your presence to reveal to us your love and your purpose for each of our lives. We aren't some random biological accident but there's a loving God who has a holy purpose for each one here. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to sense more of that purpose as we're in your presence this morning. We ask and pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Now, I tossed around this. this, uh, I tell my students at Emmanuel Institute that the first qualification of ministry is adaptability. How many of you here are in some sort of ministry? You know how ministry always goes exactly as planned, right? And so things always happen. And I've been wrestling with the different messages, you know, what I was going to be presenting. And the Lord laid something. It's not totally different, but it's a little different on my heart this morning. And uh, the series that I'm addressing this weekend is it's time someone finally told you the truth about. And uh, this afternoon we're going to be talking about it's time someone finally told you the truth about the nature, the human nature of Christ. That's one of those things in in the Adventist church that we get in these big debates about. We're not going to be debating this afternoon. This is going to be a study. It's for the purpose of enrichment, not debate. And then the last message we're going to be looking at is the, it's, it's time someone finally told you the truth about faith and works. This is another one of those things that Christians try to figure out where do we, where does, where do, do, does faith begin and works end or works begin and how's the whole thing in there and when do your works become legalistic and all of this kind of thing? Well, it's an important question because you just can't, you know, we talk about pew warming. We know that's not a good idea. Well, when does getting up and getting active become legalistic? 
And these are questions, practical questions, questions I get a lot of, so we're going to be addressing those a little bit. This morning's message is it's time someone finally told you the truth about revisionist Adventist history. Now, I know it's visitors have some because, well, this is, we're going to be talking about Adventist history. Really, not a whole lot, but a little bit. And you'll see what I mean in just a moment. You see, I grew up in the Adventist church. I shared this last night until I was about uh, 14 years old. At that time, my family left the Adventist church. Well, my mom did. I, I lived with my mom and my stepdad. Left the Adventist church for about 11 years or so. And then I came back into the church later on. The Lord is so good and merciful, and he pursued me like he pursues each one of us to draw us back to himself. But growing up in the church, and, and especially coming back into the church, it's interesting, and I, I'll talk about two different aspects of Adventist history. One is what you read in the books. And I've read some, some great histories on, uh, I love religious history. And one of the biggest, uh, what I want to say, um, eras in our church are the most influential was the 1888 era. I don't know how many of you studied history on that. There's a fantastic book by a man named Ron Duffield called The Return of the Latter Rain. Oh, phenomenal book on Adventist history. What I discovered, well, I didn't discover it in that book. I already knew it, but that book confirmed it, is there are a lot of accounts of what happened in the past that really didn't happen the way they say they happened. And, you know, that could be my say versus your say, but we have plenty of historical documents to do it, and that particular book documents that very well. So there are sometimes there are histories that we say, oh, this happened and that happened, and you go back and you find out, well, that's not exactly what happened. And so when we use the term revisionist history, that just means it's a history that really didn't happen just the way they said. Now there's that type of church history, then there's also personal history. And ever since I've been in this back in the Adventist church, I always hear these stories. They're unending stories about the grinding legalism of Adventism when you had to do this and do that and do the other and it, all these things so you could be saved and it was always oppressive and it was so smothering and I'm so glad we're past that and, and, and that kind of thing. What's interesting to me from my personal experience is, now I've been back in the church now 22 years, is what I hear described in stories is something I've never experienced in 22 years in the church. So whatever, if it happened, it didn't happen just like that, and it certainly didn't happen in 22 years. Now you're going to say, oh, wait a minute, I, I experienced that. I've been through, I, and I, I'm firsthand. So I want to suggest something to you this morning. You're going to have to bear with me as we look at another perspective. Now, how many of you are familiar with the invisible gorilla experiment? Does anybody know the invisible? There's like three of us here, so I'm going to clue the rest of you in. There's a couple cognitive psychologists from Harvard. Well, they've been in, in, in different places. Daniel Simons and Christopher Chabri. Now, you can look up theinvisiblegorilla.com and you can find their website. And then they have videos of the original experiment. Now, here's the original experiment. What they did in the invisible gorilla experiment was they had a group of young people passing basketballs around. I believe there were three in black shirts and three in white shirts. And each group had their own basketball. So they're passing, the three are passing here, and the other group, the three are passing there. They played the video to their subjects in the, the, in the experiment, and they said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch carefully and count how many times those in white shirts pass the basketball? How many times the basketball changes hands? Now you have to be careful, watch closely, because sometimes they'll fake a pass and it won't change hands, so that doesn't count. Count how many times they change hands. Now that was what they were supposed to do. Now you can watch the video. Now what happens is they begin passing the ball around. 
in the middle of this, and it's about, I don't know, maybe a minute, maybe two minutes most, uh, this little video. But in the midst of them passing the ball around, somebody walks out. So here you have the frame. Say the frame of the screen is right here. They're passing the ball around. Somebody walks out in a gorilla suit, stops in the middle, goes like this, walks off the, out, of the, out of the frame on the other side. They ask the people afterwards, how many of you saw the gorilla? 50% didn't see the gorilla. 50%. And the, the experiment has been repeated over and over and over. And then they've gone into other. Now, what they're trying to test is the, the way that the brain works and remembers things and notices things. And they dubbed this phenomenon of people not seeing the gorilla in, inattentional blindness. In other words, when a person is focusing on one specific thing, they often miss the thing something that may be very obvious to anybody else, but because they're so myopic, focused on one thing, they miss something else entirely. And so because they were looking at, first of all, the white shirts, when the black-suited gorilla came out, the black was filtered out of their mind, because I don't, I don't want distracted by that. I've got to count how many times the ball changes hands. Now, it's amazing, again and again, this experiment was repeated. Well, they've repeated it so many times, so that what happened is, they would get into a group of college students. They'd say, you know, the invisible, oh yeah, we know this one. And we know what we're going to look for. And we're going to look for the gorilla. And of course, they'd see the gorilla. So they modified the experiment. And one of them, and you'll see this if you go to their website. One of them, what they did is they, they have a, a curtain in the back. And it's a, it's a, I think it starts out as, an, as a red curtain. And it changes to orange in the process. And one of the people that's passing the basketball with the black shirts totally leaves the, the, the stage altogether. And so what they do is they say, how many saw the gorilla? <laughs> Everybody's like, we saw the gorilla, because they knew it was coming, right? How many saw the screen change? Hmm. How many saw the person go off the stage? Oh, I didn't see that. Now, the point is that we don't notice half the things we think we notice, and if we're specifically looking for one thing, we may totally miss another thing. Now, I'll tell you one other experiment they did that I thought was really uh, humorous to me. They actually had a, a, they went in, on a campus and they were interviewing a man and they began to take this, uh, I need Weston to come up here. Weston, help me with this. Now, boy, Hammer, Reed, why don't you come up here for a minute too? I, I, you've got to just, I, I, you've got to understand what I'm saying here. So what they did is, um, let's say Weston, you're interviewing. Now, I, I'm, so I'm just some guy on the, on the campus and say Weston comes up and begins asking me directions. That's what happened. He began asking directions. So while we're talking, now Reed, you're not in the picture yet. What happens is while we're talking, they had two guys carrying a piece of four by eight plywood. And what they did is they walked right in between. So here I'm talking, you're in the plywood, or you're carrying the plywood. Now you come in only when you get here and I can't see you, but he's behind the plywood. You grab the plywood, you move off, you switch and you're standing there. The guy didn't even know it. Thank you for, and, and, and so these types of experiments where, you know, people, the bottom line is in their research, and they've got a book called The Invisible Gorilla that highlights some of this, is that people don't notice half the things they think they notice. They aren't half as smart as they think they are. They don't remember half the things as clearly as they, oh, I got to tell you one other thing. Boy, I got to watch my time here. That kind of plays into this. As I think it was Christopher Chabri was sharing he actually had a friend of his, he had a personal experience where he was 
sitting in a group for lunch or dinner at a restaurant with, um, uh, who's the guy, Patrick Stewart, who played Pat Captain Picard in the Star Trek series, right? So they're in this restaurant. Well, some of the, the, the waiters and waitresses notice this guy, this actor, and so they come up to the table and they want his autograph and everything else and, and uh, kind of held up the whole process of what they were doing there, but he, he was, Stewart was very kind and, and took their autographs and everything. Anyway, the bottom line is, Christopher Chabris was there it was his experience, and he had shared it. Sometime later, a friend of his was sharing the experience with him. Apparently, he had shared it with many people, and he's saying, yeah, I was at this restaurant, blah, 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 and, and Christopher says, wait a minute, that wasn't you, that was me. <laughs> and the guy had so, I don't know, put himself in that story that he thought that memory was his memory when it wasn't his memory, it was somebody else's memory. I've met people who saw something on a TV show and they're like, yeah, I remember that one time. Wait a minute, that wasn't me. Have you ever had that happen? So the point is, sometimes we don't see things as clearly as we think. And I just wonder if there may not be something that affects people's memories of how hard their Christian experience has been. And to answer that, I want to go to the book of 1 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, first of all. 2 Corinthians... 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is an awesome chapter, and I want you to notice what I want to highlight here is perspective and perspective change. Okay? That, 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 that was the challenge with the invisible gorilla is because people were focused on one thing, they didn't see something else. I think there have been some Adventists who have looked so hard for legalism in the church, they see it even when maybe it's not exactly there. Why do I say that? Because some people have even equated obedience to legalism. Listen, folks, obedience is not legalism. Okay? Legalism has to do with motive. Now, if I do something for my wife because I love my wife and I want to please my wife, would you call me legalistic for doing that? No, but what if I, what I did was, let me rephrase that again. If I did something because, for, my, for my wife because we have a loving relationship and I know she loves me and in reciprocation I want to please her, would you call that a legalistic thing? No, but if I'm doing it to earn my wife's favor, is that a different story? Yes, and there's a difference between obeying God because we appreciate the salvation given us so freely in Christ and obeying God because we're trying to earn salvation. Okay? And two people could be doing the exact same things outwardly, and one could be a legalist and one could not. And so sometimes it was, oh, we want to call everything legalism. Motive determines legalism. Perspective is a big thing. Now, if you go to, um, you're there at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, trying to figure where I want to begin here. Now, this is one of those passages, in fact, that, that a lot of people find very confusing, and I suppose parts of it could be. But Paul is comparing, well, let's just start in verse 1. He says, do we again, I'm sorry, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others, epistles or letters of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our letters written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle or a letter of Christ ministered by us, written with ink, but by the Spirit of, written, sorry, not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of what? Stone, but on tablets of 
flesh, that is, of the heart. Now, he introduces this right now, and you're going to see where he's going in a minute. So he's now he's comparing that which is written on stone and that which is just written on the flesh. Now, just having, if you've read elsewhere in the Bible, what do you think he's talking about when he talks about something written on stone? He's going to be talking about the commandments of God. That's, that's, this is, the apostle uses it elsewhere. Other apostles have referred to it. Now you'll see where he's going in just a moment. Verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Now, uh, sorry, not that we think we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of what? The new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter what? Kills, but the spirit gives life. Verse 7, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, and I'm going to pause there and let's just talk about this. What was it that was written and engraved on stones? The Ten Commandments. He calls it a ministry of death. Now, a lot of people read in this and they say, well, ministry of death's right. The law of God, man, those Ten Commandments, commandment keepers and all these people, is a ministry of death. Get away from it. The New Covenant says get away from that. I just want you to get a perspective here. Uh, hold your finger there. We're going to go and look at Romans chapter 8 just briefly. And we're going to come back to 2 Corinthians 3. Romans chapter 8. Now you might be confused at the moment, but you'll be unconfused very shortly here. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 2. The apostle says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of what? Sin and death. Now, he calls it the ministry of death over there. So here Paul contrasts two things, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. What's he talking about? Verse 3, for what the law could not do. What law is he talking about that couldn't do something? It's the Ten Commandment law. What the law could not do and then it was weak because it was a bad law. Is that what your Bible says? What, what was the weakness? Oh, the flesh. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, all he's contrasting there is this. When a person tries to keep the law according to the flesh, that is in their own strength, all they're going to do is fail, 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 fail. Right? But when a person trusts in the power of the Spirit and through the power of the Spirit seeks to come in harmony with God's will, it brings them into harmony with God's will. The law of God, the righteous requirement, it will be fulfilled in the life of the one who walks not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You trust in God, and the power of God will enable you to do what you couldn't do without the power of God. Are you following that? So when we're talking about the law of sin and death and the law of the Spirit, are there two different laws or one law approached two different ways? Let me ask it again. Are there two different laws that Paul's talking about or is there one law approached two different ways? It's one law approached two different ways. There's nothing wrong with God's law. 
The question is how we approach the law of God. If we approach the law of God in our own strength, it's a law of sin and death and becomes a ministry of condemnation. Okay, back to 2 Corinthians 3. Now you'll see where we're going here in just a moment. 2 Corinthians 3, and we're going to start again in verse 7. Uh, let's start again in verse 6. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now I'm going to throw this out here without some extensive Bible study because we don't have time, but you can study it on your own. I'm going to tell you the difference, the main primary difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The main primary difference, it's called conversion. It's not the law. The law doesn't change in Scripture, right? I mean, the Old Testament, they used the law of the Medes and the Persians, but did not change as kind of a metaphor. Like, if the, if, the, if the pagans have laws that can't change, why in the world would God have a law that did change? Incidentally, his son had to die on the cross for breaking that law, for our breaking of that law, rather, because it couldn't change. God's law doesn't change. And the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the difference is the people change. Okay? The new covenant changes the heart of man to bring him in harmony with the law. Now we could go to Romans 7:14. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but you might jot it down where the Bible says, the Apostle Paul says this, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Okay, the law is what? Spiritual, but I am carnal. Are those two things in harmony? No, that's our problem. A carnal person will never be in harmony with a spiritual law. So what must happen? What has to happen? Either the spiritual thing needs to be made carnal so that they're alike, or the carnal thing needs to be made spiritual so that they're in harmony. Are you following that? Okay. Now, does it make more sense? Do we want to make the spiritual thing carnal? Bad idea. We want to take this carnal thing and make it spiritual. Who's carnal? We're carnal. And so the new covenant promises to make us spiritual, to bring us in harmony with a spiritual law. You know what Christianity has done at large? We don't like the idea of making me spiritual because you know what that means? That means change. That means change. It means I have to admit I'm wrong. And I don't like that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to say, hey, the law was done away with. We take the spiritual thing out of the picture. Guess what? That doesn't fix the problem. That doesn't fix the problem. Now the apostle here says... He calls this the ministry of death versus the ministry of spirit. The law of without the spirit kills, but the law with the spirit gives life. Now notice verse 7. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious. So he calls it the ministry of death, but he calls it glorious. Now when you use the word glorious to describe something, is that the way you describe something bad or something good? Oh, I hate that thing. It's glorious. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you call a ministry of death glorious? Simply this, because the law of God, even engraved on stones, was still a picture of the character of God. It was a transcript of the character of God, but it couldn't change us. And so even though the law led to death because of our natures, it was still glorious. But notice what Paul goes on to say here. Even though the ministry of death was written engraved in stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance or his face, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? If the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Now I'm going to jump to verse 12. 
Oh, I guess not. Verse 10. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, I know some of that you got lost in, but follow along in verse 13. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded, right? For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in what? Unlifted in the reading of what? The Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Now, here's the picture. He gives us the picturesque, the, the, the story and picture. Moses went up into the mountain of God to receive the Ten Commandments. You remember that? He spent 40 days with God. When he came down, what, was, what happened with the people? Oh, they couldn't look at his face. He was so resplendent with the glory of God, just from standing in the presence of God. He was so beaming with the glory of God, they had to put a veil over his face. How long did Moses have that veil over his face? Was it there indefinitely? No. no. There was a, after a time the glory faded. The Apostle Paul is using this to explain this experience. When you and me, we come into contact with something spiritual, like the law of God, but we keep it on the outside, like in the Old Covenant. We see it, we admire it, we want to do it, but we don't internalize it. It hangs on the outside. It's glorious. Over and over, I've met with people in the Amish church who go to some convention. They come back all fired up. They're just on fire. They're full of glory. But you know what? They don't apply it in their own lives. They don't give their personal study attention. And the glory fades away. Right? The old covenant is outward. They never make it inward. The law of God is something that doesn't change them. And for many, it just becomes a burden because of their perspective to it. Are you following what I'm saying? The law that should be a law of life becomes to them a law of death because they don't seek Christ and the indwelling of his spirit to bring their nature in harmony with God's law. You hear what I'm saying? Now, I'm going to take this principle and I'm going to look at it in one of the most well-known parables in the Bible, and that's the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Now, this parable, I love this parable. I think everybody loves this parable. But for the longest time, we go to Luke 15 and we look about the prodigal, we read about the prodigal son, I'd hear about the prodigal son, and I would always hear, and I'm not knocking this, I would always hear about the love of the father who when the son, the prodigal, comes home, he runs out to greet him, he throws his arms around him, he calls for the fatted calf, he celebrates... It's a powerful picture of the love of our Heavenly Father. But what I didn't ever hear about growing up in my Christian background, what have you, is that son. And this is what I mean. Consider some things with me in the story of the prodigal son. It says in verse 11 of, of Luke 15, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all and moved into the guest house. <laughs> Would have been nice. 
He moves into a far country and then he wastes his possessions. Incidentally, that's where the prodigal means. Prodigal means the wasteful son. Gets his possession and goes off and blows it all, okay? Now, here's the thing that began to plague me. Why did he run away, first of all? And, and, and in other words, what, he, got the possess, he got his inheritance. Look, why not hang out? His father's wealthy. Sure, he had a guest house or something, or at least he could have lived in town, so he would have been close to his father. Why did he have to move into a far country? Has anybody here ever run away from home? Why does a kid run away from home? Because things are going well at home? Because they're happy at home? Usually it's because they just didn't get their way on something. Something just happened, they didn't get their way, and it's like, that's it, I'm fed up. Pack a couple sandwiches, I'm out the door. Right? Now listen to this. I read this in the book Christ's Object Lessons. Why did this son leave the home? Why did he move so far away? Christ's Object Lessons, page 198, says this. This younger son had become weary of the restraint of his father's house. He thought that, he thought that his liberty was restricted. Boy, isn't that... Every kid... I mean, I don't, you don't have to be a Christian. Every kid grows up thinks, man, I'm not allowed to do anything. Why all these rules? Now listen... This is what happened. The son, the rules, ah, this is too oppressive. It's restrictive. He wanted to go out on his own. He knew that it would be better if he didn't have all that restriction around him. Okay? So he strikes out on his own. He takes the, the inheritance and he wastes it. Now here's, there's two things that happen in the course of this story. I'm just touching briefly here. Two things that happen in the experience of the son. The Bible says he spent all... And it says, when he spent all, there arose a famine in that land. And he began to be in want. So, I don't know how long. The Bible doesn't give us a time period. He could have been gone a year, five years, 20 years. I don't know. But there came a time when his money ran out. And when the famine arose, he was in want. He didn't ever see himself. In other words, he didn't have money. He didn't know where to go. He didn't know what to do. He never saw himself in this situation. He began to be in want. Now, what do you expect a person would do in a situation like that? Put yourself there. Man, go back home, right? Look, go back home. No, 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 no. Not going to go back home. Why? What would keep a person from going back home? You got it. Pride. Pride. No, there's no way I'm going back home. And notice it says he joined himself to a citizen of that country. Now, don't miss what I'm about to say. When we talk about legalism, legalism is not just something for conservative Christians. Legalism is woven into the fabric of fallen humanity. Legalism is simply trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't have to be a Christian. You can be an atheist and still be a legalist. If you're trying to work your own way, you don't have to be a conservative. You can be a liberal Christian. Say, I don't believe in following all those rules. I just help people in the soup kitchen. Why? So I can be a good person. Guess what? You're a legalist. Isn't that true? It's motivation. It's all about motivation. This young son, what does he do? He does what any and every human being do at some point in their life. And let me tell you, when you first become a Christian, you first hear about Christ, and even sincerely give your heart to him, your nature is still going to respond legalistically. So somebody wants to say, you know, the church, there's legalists in the church. Of course there's legalists in the church. It's just like the people who say there's hypocrites in the church. I don't go to church because there's hypocrites in it. Well, where else would you expect a hypocrite to be? <laughs> I mean, you're saying one thing and doing another. You're pretending to be something. If you weren't pretending to be a Christian or pretending to be a good person, you wouldn't be there. 
Oh, there's hypocrites in the church. Amen. There's legalists in the church. That's right. I've been one and you've been one. Because the natural heart tends to try to dig ourselves out. And the Lord takes us where we are. Now, here, this young man, what's he do? He joins himself to a citizen. Why? I see I've got a problem, but I'm going to fix it. And he tries it. And the Bible doesn't tell us how long. He gets to where he's feeding pigs, which is the lowest thing he could be doing. For a young Jewish man, that's, the, that's, the, that's, that's rock bottom. The pigs are eating better than he is. And then the Bible says, he came to himself. He came to himself. He began to think, you know what? My father's servants are better off than this. My father's servants live better than this. And he began to think about what? What's that? Going home. Going home. Now, don't miss this. This is incredible. This same young man, some years earlier, wouldn't, it was not content to live in his father's house under his father's rules as a son, yet now he's actually thinking about doing it as a servant. Did the father get a hold of him? Do we have that? Did he text him or something and say, you know, son, I've been too hard on you. I'm changing some of the rules. I'm going to lift up some of the rules and come on home. No. Why? Because the father represents God and God's law doesn't need changed. The problem was the son didn't understand the character of his father. And because of that, he looked at everything differently. His perspective was off. The law was a law of sin and death to him. When the Bible says he began to be in want, in the Christian experience, we call that conviction. But conviction isn't conversion. You can be convicted of what you're doing is wrong, but you didn't. You try to fix it yourself. But when the Bible says he, be, he came to himself, that's the first step in conversion, where he began to entertain that, you know what, maybe my father was right and I was wrong. I think of my conversion experience. There's a lot of things that I could think about, a lot of aspects to it, but the one thing that really comes clear in my mind that I remember about that time in my life is for the first time I started taking responsibility for my actions. Prior to that, it was everybody else's fault. I mean, whether it was a person or my circumstances in life where the reason I'm where I am is because of this and this, and I never had these opportunities. Some kids get raised with more stuff, and some people have more opportunities, and blah, 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 on and on. But for the first time, I realized that I had choices I could make. The father's rules didn't change in the story of the prodigal son. The son changed. And when the son came home, something else that's very interesting is in the story of the prodigal son, you cannot deny the love of the father for the son. It's so clear. Because the, smell, the son with the pigs and all that and everything, he comes home and he's got this speech prepared. The Bible says when he was a great way off, the father saw him. Now, that tells us right away, you don't see somebody coming a great way off. It's like, he didn't say, again, he didn't send a message ahead. Oh, Dad, I'm going to be home in 24 hours. So how does Father see him coming? He had to be looking for him. Well, if he didn't know when he was coming, what does that tell us? He was looking for him constantly. Why is the parable written that way? Because God, our Heavenly Father, is longing for us to come home constantly, constantly. Which begs the question, why didn't he just go after him? You can't question the love of the Father because when the Son shows up, the Bible the Father says the Father saw him a long way off. He ran to him. 
He embraced him. And he kissed him. And he called his son begins the speech. Well, you know, father, forget the speech. Bring the best robes, right? So nothing in the story. The story makes it so clear to us that the father loved him. Because, see, we could be tempted to say, well, the father, maybe he was just a troubled son. He was a, he was a hassle anyway. And that's why the father didn't go after him. No, the father wanted him home. The reason the father didn't go after him is because if he'd gone after him and forced him to come home because of what was in that son's heart, the son would have just gone away again. Our Heavenly Father is not going to force you to come home. You've got to come home of your own accord. But make no mistake, he's waiting and watching and longing every moment of every day. It wasn't the Father's rules that needed change. The Son was what needed changed. Our hearts need changed. And oh, how our Father wants to change us and heal us. Conversion doesn't change the rules. It changes our relation to the rules. How are you relating to the rules today? I started out talking about the stories I hear. I mean, they're Adventists. I still, they're in the church, but they still tell the stories. And they're still bitter over something or the other. Look, I could have gone, when I was converted, I could have gone back and pointed out really legitimate things that happened. And that this person did this and this person. And yeah, they did do it. And they shouldn't have done it. But you know what? It was irrelevant. I was still a sinner in need of a Savior. And the best place to be was in my father's house. There's a lot of prodigals today who have only come halfway home. Only come halfway home. The people in the church... They know what the will of God is. They know it in the Word. They're good Adventists. They've grown up. They've heard it. They've seen it in the spirit of prophecy. But they say, ah, oh, this little lifestyle thing or that. You know, I'll get away with this and I'll keep living this way. They're just halfway home. The reality is they find no pleasure being in the Father's house. Their heart is still in need of change. Now you can go on. If you're sitting here today and you say, oh, I don't like what he's saying. I'm going to go and I'm going to keep on. Because I don't think it's a big deal. Fine. But what you're just doing is you're being stubborn. You're letting your pride Take control and you're not opening your heart to the full transformation God wants to give you. You know, God has to have the whole heart to fix the whole heart. You give him half the heart, you can't fix half a heart. You go to your doctor and say, hey, I got heart problems, can you just fix half of it? He's not going to do that. God is in the business of changing hearts. I'm going to tell you as I stand here, one of the challenges we face as Christians today, I mean, this is coming into, this is not something that used to be Adventist. But something uniquely Adventist that we've understood is that conversion is a continual process. It's not some one time, oh, 20 years ago, I gave my heart to the Lord. Look, you need to give your heart to the Lord today. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul said, I die daily. What is he saying? I mean, you can't, if you die, you, how are you going to live? You've got to be born again daily. Paul knew that. We need to understand that. I stand before you today and I still need a heart change. And I, I am so thankful that my Heavenly Father is in that business. Perhaps somebody here needs a heart change today. Perhaps the Spirit of God is speaking to you just this morning. And you know that there's something in your heart that's not right with Him. And you've had some kind of issue with the church rules, you call them. It's easier to call them church rules than God's rules because we kind of excuse ourselves that way. But right now, the Spirit of God is speaking to you, and you know in your heart, my heart's not right with God. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? 
your heavenly father has been looking down that road for a long time. And he's longing for you to come so he can throw his arms around you, embrace you, and call you my son, my daughter. I'm glad you're home. Is there somebody here today who wants to come home? You want to come home to your Heavenly Father today? Is that your desire? If it is, raise your hands with me this morning. Let's bow our heads together. Father in Heaven. Father, forgive us for so often wanting our own way, for so often looking at things from our own perspective, for so often resisting your will because of something in our own hearts that we just don't want to let go of. Father, there are those here today that perhaps for the first time have realized that they have run from home, far from home, into that far country. Maybe for some reason or another they never saw you longing and waiting for them to come home. And this morning they've sensed the voice of your spirit speaking to them. I pray, Lord, today you would throw your arms of love around each one and welcome them home. Father, I pray for those of us who maybe have been home, as so to speak, who have been in the church, but allowed ourselves to become discontent for what we might have blamed as somebody else's faults or some of the church's weaknesses, when in reality... Our own hearts are still filled with selfishness and pride. And today, we hear your Spirit speaking to us. He wants to make that law that's been a law of sin and death, a law of life and liberty. Father, I ask today, change my heart. And for each one of us here, you've seen our response. Change our hearts today. We need it. We need you so desperately. Jesus, we need to die to sin that you may live in us so that the life we may live now will not be a life lived in the flesh, but by the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.